This past Monday, January 27th, 2020, marked the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Today, we examine a significant Holocaust memorial here in the United States. One of the earliest examples is right here in Atlanta. In examining this, we're going to look at the significance of memorials in helping people heal, as well as represent things that unfortunately otherwise are sometimes too large to ignore. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. Given the pretty monumental memorialization that has happened of the Holocaust, I think sometimes it's easy to get lost, and I saw surprisingly little coverage of the fact that it had been 75 years since the liberation of Auschwitz. And so it got me thinking, uh, that coupled with the fact that I happened to mention the memorial to the Six Million to someone this past week, it's one of those things that I had never necessarily heard about. Um, Maybe six months after I moved to Atlanta, I visited Greenwood Cemetery, which is in southwest Atlanta for the first time, and I stumbled upon it quite by accident and was really struck by it. It's a very powerful memorial. It's quite beautiful as a piece of modern architecture, and I think it's something that people should really know about. There are certain Holocaust memorials that definitely get a lot of notice, obviously the museum in Washington, D.C., being right on the National Mall is definitely the most visible. But this one I think is really interesting, and it's something that I continue to be fascinated by because Atlanta is not exactly what you would consider to be a hotbed of modern Judaism, but in many ways it is. We have not gone in-depth about Jewish burial customs. It's definitely something that I want to cover, but today I want to focus on a non-traditional memorial that is nonetheless in a cemetery here in Atlanta. So hopefully you will find this both educational and interesting. There's a couple of what I would consider to be somewhat controversial things to talk about here, but it's a difficult topic. So I ask you to bear with me on those type of questions because I think that they are important to ask. So the memorial to the six million or the Memorial to the Six Million Martyrs, as it's sometimes called, is located in Greenwood Cemetery. And Greenwood is definitely probably one of the lesser-known cemeteries in Atlanta, but nonetheless, it's pretty impressive. Today, it is probably best known for being the final resting place of the founder of Chick-fil-A, who, as the man who invented the original Christian chicken brand, it does give me a big kick to know that he's spending eternity overlooking the Jewish section of the burial ground, but that's maybe just my perverse sense of humor. Greenwood is unusual in the fact that it's sort of one of those in-between cemeteries. It's certainly not a traditional rural cemetery. It's closer in style to that in-between lawn park style that we talked about that was sort of categorized by Spring Grove in Cincinnati. However... It also is sectioned off heavily and encompasses a great number of different ethnic and religious groups. And so as a result, it doesn't fit any category neatly. It's founded in 1904 um, with a pretty sizable financial investment by two gentlemen named William H. Brown and James L. Mason. And There's not an interment for a couple of years. So clearly they're taking their time laying this out and thinking about who they're going to sell to. It unfortunately is not desegregated until 1987, which, I mean, it sounds pretty modern. It's 32 years ago. But you have to keep in mind that this is Atlanta. And so desegregation is something that does take a long time certainly more so out in rural counties, but even here in Atlanta. But despite that, you do have a wide range of white persons of various faiths. So you have a huge Jewish population. You have a Greek Orthodox section. You have a Chinese section. It's an interesting cemetery, and you can go to each of these little individual sections, and they are very clearly demarcated. Many of them have fences, 
the Greek Orthodox section has its own tiny little Greek Orthodox church. There are a lot of union burials there. I know there's like a typesetters union. There's some interesting monuments there. I would definitely recommend a visit to Greenwood if you are local to Atlanta. It's an experience because you do get to see quite a few things in a very small area. Now, the question is, why was it chosen for this memorial? What's the significance of it? You have a number of Jewish congregations who do have sections here at Greenwood Cemetery. However, none of them is specifically the one that is responsible for the memorial to the Six Million. The memorial to the Six Million is originally the brainchild of a sort of special interest group here in Atlanta that went by the name of Eternal Life Hemshik. And what happened was, is that they felt very strongly that Atlanta becomes sort of one of the hotbeds for not just Holocaust survivors, but for a large number of Jewish immigrants. This is something that if, even if you're kind of unfamiliar with Jewish culture in general, most people have seen Driving Miss Daisy and Driving Miss Daisy was one of a trio of plays that was all about Jews in the South. It's obviously the most famous of the three, but they're all set right here in Atlanta and the surrounding Southern culture. And they talk about basically how you have this strange hybrid of Southern Jews who we tend to think much more in terms of the populations in places like New York, but there was a very thriving Jewish community Sadly, I think one of the most beautiful lost buildings in Atlanta was the Jewish Orphans Home, which if you have never seen a picture of it, it's de- it's definitely worth looking up. Just magnificent, enormous building um, that is today a parking lot. And if you go to the Bremer Museum here in Atlanta, they actually have some of the pieces of terracotta tile that were saved when they did demolish it. But Understand that there is a huge Jewish population here in Atlanta, many of whom are Holocaust survivors or the relatives of those who died in the Holocaust. So there's a very, very deep underlying cultural tie to the Holocaust in Europe. So in 1964, there is a short article published in the Southern Israelite, which that is a precursor to the modern um, Atlanta Jewish Times, which is still printed today. And a young architect by the name of Benjamin Hirsch reads this and reads that this group is going to be meeting to discuss the possibility of a Holocaust memorial. Now, you have to understand, as shocked as the United States was by the atrocities of the Holocaust, the idea of putting up a memorial was still one that was relatively young. At this point, there are only two or three memorials of any kind in the United States. Um, The earliest that we have a record of is just a simple obelisk that's erected in 1947 in Indianapolis, Indiana. There is a small marker placed in Riverside Park in Manhattan in the late 40s, which will eventually be replaced with a much larger monument. It was kind of a placeholder Um, And then finally, um, MX Shalom, which is a specifically Holocaust-dedicated cemetery in Richmond, Virginia, is opened in 1955. But none of these are a memorial in the sense that will kind of come to grow under the tradition of memorials and what we think of as memorials today. Something that's interactive, something that's not just a marker, but an actual place to be experienced. So Benjamin Hirsch, this young architect, attends this meeting. Now, Hirsch himself, it's worth kind of taking a backtrack and explaining, is a Holocaust survivor. So Hirsch is born in Frankfurt, Germany, and he is part of a large Jewish family there. His father is a dentist, and he and his siblings escape Frankfurt after Kristallnacht, the sort of now infamous kind of first major step in the expulsion of the Jews when they attack all of the Jewish property owners. They, you know, the name comes from the idea that they had smashed all of the windows. 
after all of this happens, his mother makes a decision to put him on what is known as the kinder transport. And so what happens is, is that he and his older siblings, there are five of them, uh, including him, they escape from Germany in 1941. They go on to France and they eventually end up in the United States, in Atlanta, where he attends high school and eventually goes on to attend Georgia Tech. He graduates with a degree in architecture from Georgia Tech in 1958. And he will go on to actually serve in the U.S. Army himself. Um, ironically, he serves overseas in Germany. And then becomes like a full-fledged architect in 1962. So at this point, he has started practicing it. So Hirsch has a history with this. And he goes to this meeting in October of 1964 and discovers that the plan is to place essentially just a marble slab with the words six million on it. And that is the plan for this memorial. And so he listens very carefully and then goes home and can't sleep that night. So at four o'clock in the morning, he gets up and he starts to sketch and he starts to draw. And he produces a plan for a memorial. And he presents it to the eternal life, Hemshek. And this will eventually become the memorial to the six million. And this is a crowdsourced memorial. They raise the money for this, which in total, it's almost $11,000. Most of it is raised in individual $100 donations. No single donation totaled more than 500. And it is crowdsourced from different congregations, different groups, and they put it together. So they purchase a plot of land in Greenwood Cemetery for $2,400. It's a pretty large plot because they're going to erect a building, not just an individual marker. The memorial itself would cost somewhere around $8,000, and then they eventually landscape the area around it for an additional $400. Now, it's worth noting that Hirsch is a very interesting guy in terms of his education. At Georgia Tech, he is educated um, by Paul Heffernan, who Paul Heffernan is maybe a name if you're not super into architecture that you don't recognize, but Paul Heffernan was a Harvard-educated architect, and he studied under Walter Gropius, which hopefully you've at least heard of Walter Gropius. Walter Gropius is one of the masterminds behind the Bauhaus. So Gropius himself had escaped Germany, first to the United Kingdom, then eventually to the United States, Basically, during the rise of the Third Reich, um, the Bauhaus, which is maybe the best thing that comes out of the Weimar Republic, is a school of design. If nothing else, you're probably familiar with the Bauhaus font that you can find in Microsoft Word. But the Bauhaus was essentially a collective group of artists who didn't believe in studying a single discipline, but rather were craftsmen. It's sort of a modern-day arts and crafts movement where you have people living and working together in a Bauhaus collective. And you have some of the biggest names that emerge in 20th century architecture emerge from this. Um, Mies van der Rohe is probably the other biggest one that everybody would know. But so Gropius eventually went on to become the chair of the architecture department at Harvard. He has his own really exceptionally beautiful house in Lincoln, Massachusetts, which is now a museum. I would very much encourage you. It's only five minutes further on past Walden Pond. If you ever have a desire to visit all the places that we talked about in our Straight Out of Concord episode. So it's right down the road. I actually visited them in the same day when I went there. But Walter Gropius has brought these really core principles of what is known as the international style. The international style, I mean, might not be something that everyone's familiar with, but if you think about modern architecture, odds are it is the international style. And this is the idea that form follows function, that the design of a building should be dictated by its use. So keep that in mind as I'm kind of describing what this memorial is going to look like, because you can kind of understand where this spare, pared-down impression comes from. 
And arguably, I think that this is one of the most exceptional things about the Memorial to the Six Million is the fact that it really breaks with earlier traditions of what memorials should look like. There is, as we've talked about abundantly on this podcast, a tradition to go with either classical styles, harking back to Greece and Rome and antiquity, also as well as allegorical things. So we talked a lot about allegorical figures of faith and things like that. This is none of those. This is very stark in its presentation, and I think that for something as monumental as the Holocaust, there's something to be said for that. And, you know, to draw a parallel, I think most people arguably will say that when it comes to memorials, the Vietnam Memorial is one of the most powerful ones, which the Vietnam Memorial, if you look at it, is remarkably simple. I think it's extraordinarily beautiful and really, really powerful. And I think it's amazing what Maya Lin did as young as she was. But the idea of that black granite that is reflective and being able to see oneself in it is more powerful than something that's really over the top and grand and has all of these flourishes. So the international style of the Memorial of the Six Million is something that I think is worth mentioning. So this actual memorial is made up of four offset but interlocking walls. And they are made of essentially mortared granite. And it has a lot of texture and a lot of color. It's really, really beautiful. And all of these walls interlock, but it is still an open space. There are four openings where you can get in and out from essentially every side. Think of it kind of like if you remember like those interlocking study carols that they had in libraries back in the day where there was like an opening but you were never right next to somebody so you couldn't really talk to them it's similar to that where it's everything is slightly offset and you take a step up into an inner area that is still open it doesn't have a roof but it's enclosed so it feels very personal and in the center is a massive black granite casket and inside that casket are interred the ashes of the victims from Dachau. And from that casket, you have rising six mammoth torches that reach far above the top of the memorial. And obviously, each of these torches is meant to represent one of the six, each of the six million Jews who were killed during the Holocaust. And then on the interior walls, there is something essentially different on every wall. So one wall is dedicated to the children who died in the Holocaust. One wall is dedicated to the Warsaw Uprising. There is one wall that has, I think, a pretty powerful quote from Exodus where they talk about the idea that the bush burned with fire but was not consumed. The whole idea of the endurance of the Jewish people despite this incredible loss. And then the rear wall is really the focal point. And the rear wall has in both English and Hebrew the words, for these I weep. And on that wall are over a hundred um, Yarzit plats. And so Yarzit in the, the Jewish faith is normally to memorialize every year the death of a loved one, you burn a candle for 24 hours. So instead, these are sort of little eternal, these plaques are eternal flames, each of which is dedicated by someone in Atlanta in memory of those they knew who died, often entire families. So a lot of them will just say the family of and the person's name. And these are pretty sure bronze, um, but they're, they're very striking. They're sort of, they, they hover on just like a, a single little pin emerging from the wall. The materials are very interesting because the front actually, instead of having bronze, when you enter, there are ju there's just the number 6 million spelled out in, you know, Arabic numerals. But they chose iron for that and they did it purposely because they knew it would rust. And so the staining on the stone, which we talk so much about trying to avoid staining on stone in cemeteries, 
they wanted it to stain because as the rust occurs and it stains, it looks like blood. I wasn't kidding when I said that this was a very powerful memorial. There's a lot going on there. This memorial is dedicated April 25th, 1965. So this upcoming April will be the um, 55th anniversary of the dedication. And the day that is chosen is the, the day of um, Yom HaShoah, which Shoah is the, is the Hebrew word that describes the Holocaust. And this is celebrated usually every year in April. It actually goes by the Jewish calendar as opposed to the you know, Western Gregorian calendar. You know, you had a huge crowd that came out for this. As I said, because so many of the Jews that were living in Atlanta were people who had lost someone. Benjamin Hirsch really speaks quite eloquently about why he designed this. And it's not necessarily something that I think many of us can understand who have not experienced something like this. But he talked about basically the whole memorial serving three functions. So first of all, he says, for the survivors of the Nazi Holocaust who lost their families to the brutality of Hitler's followers, it must be a substitute for the actual graves of their loved ones, which do not, to their knowledge, exist. It must be a place conducive for saying the Kaddish, which is the Jewish morning prayer, a place conducive to contemplation and meditation and privacy, which if you remember, I said it's an area that's open to the sky, but also has a feeling of privacy. I think of it in this sense as being kind of like for those who are buried at sea. If you have ever been, say, to Gloucester, Massachusetts, or if you haven't been to Gloucester, if you've seen the movie The Perfect Storm, they have the very famous Fisherman's Memorial there, and it looks like the Gordon's Fisherman, but instead of peddling fish sticks, he's at the wheel. And all along the curved balustrade that overlooks the ocean in front of it, you have the names of all the men in Gloucester who have died at sea. Same way that someone who dies at sea, there's no place to mourn them. There is no grave. This is very similar. So this provides a place of mourning. And it provides a place for Jews, who Jews have very strict mourning customs. Burial of the dead and praying for the dead as, as seen as a mitzvah, a, a positive commandment for them. So having a place to undertake all of these things is hugely important for them. Secondly, he says, quote, for the generation of non-Jews that were little affected personally, but lived through World War II and are prone to say, how long must we remember? It must be a constant reminder that this unbelievable act of man against man happened in their lifetime and that our quote unquote civilized world did nothing to stop it from happening. These memorials serve just as much for non-Jews as for Jews. It is a tangible reminder. And he continues saying, quote, For those born after the war or for future generations, the monument should stimulate inquiry into the event, which very likely will by then have been minimized by the pages of history. It's a powerful question now as we talk about 75 years after the liberation of Auschwitz. And I did see a, a few posts where they're talking to Holocaust survivors, most of whom are now nearing 100, if not over 100. As the final generation of people who were part of this experience dies out, we need to have physical reminders of it. And we need to have something, I think, that shows just the magnitude and I think that looking at that wall and contemplating well over a hundred families that were just wiped out. I mean, I think most of us could say, realistically speaking, we don't know more than a hundred families. Imagine if every single family that you knew was wiped out. It's very difficult to imagine. And so I think it's, it's a positive thing in many ways that this is here. It's unfortunate it's tucked away in a cemetery that very few people visit, but I know Hirsch himself is an interesting example because if you look at him... Um, 
Hirsch met his wife, Jacqueline, who is still living. Um, she lives not far from me. She lives about a mile from me, over by Emory. They met in 1959 um, at a dance at Georgia Tech right after he had graduated. They went on to have four children, which back then, not that unusual. But they also go on to have 23 grandchildren and 19 great-grandchildren. And it's one of those things that we tend not to think about a single individual. So that is one single individual that survives the Holocaust. And you look at the numbers there. And obviously they make the same association. Um, if you have seen Schindler's List, they talk about the Schindler Jews at the end, you know, of the, you know, roughly 2,000 Jews that Schindler saved during the war, you know, extrapolating out how many descendants there are now. It's a pretty staggering number. And so to look at those hundred plaques up on the wall, hundred plus plaques up on the wall, is a really, really powerful image. So looking at this now, 50 years later, um, I will say, especially in light of last week's episode, that the Memorial to the Six Million has been placed on the National Register of Historic Places. And it was actually placed there in 2008, which is seven years before it becomes 50 years old. So I think this is interesting, particularly last week, because we mentioned the fact that things can be eligible in less than 50 years under certain circumstances. I gave the example of Ground Zero from 9-11. And I think it's actually a very apropos parallel to make because 9-11 is a similar type of circumstance where you don't necessarily have bodies to bury where you have human remains that are literally scattered to the winds. I can remember reading an article, maybe not 10 years after 9-11, but close to that, where they talked about how they were still collecting human remains from buildings surrounding Ground Zero. How do you deal with things on those scale? It's a very, very difficult question. So it was listed on the National Register under both Criterion A for social history, for its contribution to telling the social history of the Holocaust, the social history of the people of Atlanta, and also um, for a state level of significance in the area of architecture as a good example of the international style, which as an architectural historian does make me very, very happy because I think it's um, really significant and really important to, I don't know, I guess this is just me being a big fan of modern architecture but so many people tend to dismiss it. I think it's really significant when we can make an argument and say, this is important and this is why it's important. This is how something that's very sparse and very stark can also be incredibly powerful. So, that's a brief history. There's one other issue that you really do need to talk about if you are going to talk about the Memorial to the Six Million. And that issue is the issue of the soap. So if you do get a chance to visit the Memorial to the Six Million, if you approach the memorial and you look off to the left-hand side, there's some bushes. And on that side where the bushes are, essentially in the part that faces the big Jewish section of the cemetery, you will find a small flat marker. And this marker is technically part of the memorial, but not part of the planned memorial. So it's worth mentioning um, because arguably it's the most controversial part of the memorial. And I want to go into that because I think it's a question. So the burial marker is inscribed and it says, here rest four bars of soap, the last earthly remains of Jewish victims of the Nazi Holocaust. So, the story goes that there was a young Jewish soldier from Atlanta who was part of the liberation of one of the concentration camps. And there he found these four bars of sort of grayish-green soap. And this soap had letters stamped on it. And what he thought was RJF which 
he understood to mean rain juden fet, which means real Jewish fat. And his understanding was is that the bodies of slain Jews had been rendered for fat, yeah, because fat in the form usually of lye is one of the key ingredients in soap. Obviously, it's all synthetic now, but back in the day, they did used to make it from rendered animal fat. And that they had used Jews to make these soaps. Very disturbed by this and the possibility that these were human remains, he put the soap in a bag, took it home with him, and it ended up in this bag in his basement. And then... 25 years later, he comes home from work. He's living in northeast Atlanta off La Vista Road. And his wife has run out of laundry soap, and he comes home to be horrified and see her using one of these bars of soap to do laundry. Can we pause here? I know I've certainly run out of laundry detergent before. I might use dish soap. I might just wait to do my laundry How desperate do you have to be for clean underwear to start opening up random bags and pick out moldy, grayish, green, 25-year-old petrified soap? It's a worthwhile question. Why was that the soap she went for? Does it just make a better story? I'm not really sure. But anyways, he tells his wife the tea about the soap. They are both very disturbed by this, and so they go to their rabbi in the middle of the night, as the story goes, and reach out to the rabbi, who is Rabbi Emanuel Feldman of Congregation Beth Jacob. And they pose the question of, what should we do about the soap? Now, it's important to note that Benjamin Hirsch is also a member of this congregation. And so they collectively make the decision in March of 1970 that they are going to inter this remaining soap, these remaining four bars of soap, at the memorial, next to the memorial. And so it's pasted in a wooden casket, and it's buried according to Jewish burial traditions. That's unfortunately not where the story ends. We know that something like 35 people were present at the burial of the soap. Obviously, they went on to put a marker there to memorialize it. Now... Since that time, a great deal of controversy has emerged over whether or not the Nazis ever made soap from human remains. And unfortunately, Hirsch kind of takes a lot of the negative criticism for this. So Hirsch publishes a memoir uh, by the title of Hearing a Different Drummer. And this memoir is actually mainly about his time serving in the military over in Germany. However, in chapter 23 of this memoir, he does discuss the incident of the soap. And he talks about how, you know, when he was first approached by his rabbi and they discussed this, he, it never was even a question in his mind that this was true, that the soap had been made from rendered fat taken from humans because he had an uncle who was a chemist and was forced to work at Auschwitz, and had made this type of soap from rendered fat. So the question is, is this hearsay? Did it actually happen? We certainly know from the vast amounts of knowledge that we have about the Holocaust now that the Nazis did far worse than that in terms of torture, in terms of medical experiments. But was this happening on a large scale? There certainly were remains found of people who had apparently been boiled for rendering or something along that lines. Their remains were found in concentration camps. There is a wide range of people who today think that this is just kind of utter nonsense, that this was not going on on a large scale. And unfortunately, following the publication of Hearing a Different Drummer, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C., which opened in 1993, rescinds an offer to let Benjamin Hirsch do a book reading and book signing at the museum because they find out that he mentions the soap incident in the book. 
And they basically come out publicly and say that this is ridiculous, this is nonsense, we shouldn't be promoting these type of ideas. We're not going to allow somebody who believes these soap stories to speak at our museum. Their argument is is that the stamp on the soap was actually for Reich Industry fat, you know, so Reich Industrial fat, that it was a company who produced rendered fat for soap, that they misread the soap, they didn't understand it. That there is no evidence that this type of work was going on. And their biggest thing, honestly, is the fact that the Nazis did enough. We don't need to put the human soap thing on them, too. And a woman named Deborah uh, Lipstadt, who is actually a professor at Emory University, is one of the biggest people to come out against this and argues really, really strongly in favor of, like, yes, the Nazis did a ton of bad things, but this is just... This is a little bit too much. We don't need to be perpetuating this myth. And Lipschatz is pretty famous in the world of Jewish studies because most famously, she won a huge libel case uh, in Great Britain against a Holocaust denier where she presented all of this accurate information that basically was like, you don't have a leg to stand on. You cannot deny the Holocaust. So I am not arguing against Lipschatz. But the question is now, What, what do we do about the Soylent Green soap? Is it wrong that it was buried there and that it was given the same burial as if it were really human remains? What if it is just soap? What if soap is just soap is just soap? Did they do the right thing? And the answer is I don't necessarily have a good answer for it. Um, it's certainly not unprecedented. So I think part of the problem is, is that this occurred now 50 years ago. This was in 1970. So we don't know what kind of deterioration has happened since then. It's very different to have soap in a paper bag versus have it be buried underground. Has it deteriorated since then? What, what would we know if we were to dig it up now? The argument is if we tested it for DNA, obviously there's going to be human DNA on it because people were handling it. It's soap. Would it be able to reveal anything? Is it worth doing DNA testing on soap? But also, it's buried at a memorial that is not a public memorial. It's not endorsed by the government. It was the decision of the architect, a consulting rabbi, to bury it there. What harm is it doing anyone? It may be shocking to people, this question of whether or not the Nazis made soap from rendered human fat. It may be thought-provoking for people. I understand where the National Holocaust Memorial Museum is coming from. In a world where there are still so many Holocaust deniers, they want to appear to be as legitimate as possible, to not be supporting crackpot things, to not be supporting things that are over the top and are exaggerating things. I completely understand that. However, going back to the example that I gave of September 11th and them still collecting human remains from the top of other buildings, and again, Going back, like, you hear stories about when they have the clearances of the Nazi concentration camps and they're trying to burn the remains that are still there, and it's snowing ash. When you have places of so much death and so much destruction, you have to wonder if that young Jewish soldier, even if they weren't actually made from human remains, maybe that soap symbolized something for him. Maybe he saw it as, you know, the last piece of humanity, something tangible to hold on to. Certainly many Holocaust memorials use this, where they show you golden fillings that were taken out of teeth, where they show you empty shoes that symbolize the amount of lives lost. Also, I think soap in particular is very powerful because we know for a fact that often those who were herded into gas chambers were given soap because they were told they were showering. So does the soap take on another symbolic meaning in that case? And at the end of the day, 
who does having a couple of bars buried in a cemetery hurt? That would be my big argument. But I can also see how in a, a real desperate grab for legitimacy, people also don't want to perpetuate the myth. As it is, nobody is digging this soap up. It is buried at the memorial to the six million. It's certainly there and it's certainly a curiosity. And I think that it's kind of an interesting extension of other trends that we see going on. And so just to kind of draw a parallel, I want to bring up an example that one of the few other memorials I've seen that was very powerful was actually in um, 2014 in Durham, North Carolina. There was a burial ceremony for a cake of ashes also from DeKalb, the same as the ashes which are buried at the Memorial of Six Million, which were interred 69 years after the liberation of the camp. And you have a very similar situation where an American soldier by the name of David Walter Corsby Jr. somehow acquired this cake of human remains. And he kept it in a cigarette tin, a metal cigarette tin that he brought with him back to the United States. And you know, the, the details are kind of fuzzy because he didn't speak about this his whole life until he was on his deathbed. He died in 1986 and he passed it on to his son, Joseph Corsby. And from what Joseph Corsby has told in the story, like his father was very emotional about this, even, you know, 40 years after it happened as he was dying and, you know, was crying and couldn't really be coherent about it, but just passed on and said, you know, I need you to, to know about this, to know what this is. I don't want somebody to just throw this away. So Corsby, who actually is a, an ordained minister himself, was in poor health in 2012. He'd had two heart attacks, and so he was starting to feel his own mortality. He had no children of his own. So he started to feel the weight of having this cake of ashes on him. And so he had reached out to a number of different individuals. He had some relatives who were Jewish. They spoke to their rabbi. Eventually, they took it all the way up to you guessed it, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., who are not my favorite people this week. I know they do a lot of good, but they did kind of miss the mark a couple times on this. And they basically said, nope, sorry, we can't help you. We don't deal with human remains. Again, I get it. It's a very tricky question of what to do with human remains. You don't need to tell me. I run the Cemetery Podcast. But also... As unusual as these circumstances are, there should be some sort of avenue where you can say, all right, these are the people you need to talk to. So there was a great deal of coordination, and eventually the Durham Hebrew Cemetery, which is a pretty historic cemetery. I don't believe it's still active. Um, it's not far from Duke University in Durham. Very pretty, quiet little cemetery. It's actually right next to Durham's rural cemetery, Um if you go there, it's tucked in like the corner. Um, they made the decision that if these in fact were what um, Corsby said they were, they were going to bury them. So they took this to the New York Medical Examiner's Office and they actually decided to do DNA testing, which is where this story obviously defers from the whole soap issue because the soap issue happens in 1970s it's an era before dna and like we said today you know the dna could be too degraded we don't even know if there would be anything left they tested the surface first and they discovered obviously there was dna but same argument you know they could have handled it people were touching it so they took a core sample of below the surface of this cake and they discovered that it was in fact human dna throughout that this was in fact cremated remains so Rabbi Jennifer Feldman, who had done her thesis essentially on the issue of Holocaust victims' ashes. So without getting too deep into Jewish burial traditions, traditionally Jews do not allow cremation. They believe, you know, your dust unto dust you shall return. That's the reason for burial in a plain pine box. They want you to be able to return to the earth. However, these are people who are cremated against their will. So as such, she is brought in as a consultant. 
to sort of advise and what they decide to do is that they decide to give these ashes a full burial and there's actually a beautiful memorial that they placed on top of it now um which is in the symbol of an eternal flame which i think is is quite striking again it goes back to that whole idea that the bush burned with fire and was not consumed it's quite striking i do have a good picture of it i will make sure to post it on social media because i think it's one of those things that you probably would never see, like I said, it's tucked away in like a quiet back corner of a cemetery that's no longer active. I just happened to stumble across it when I went to the Vernacular Architecture Forum conference up in Durham, I think four years ago, 2016 maybe. So not too long after this reburial happened. This is something that happens in the modern age. It's essentially the same story. Now I know that this is actual cremated remains as opposed to this unknown soap substance. But the stories are remarkably similar. And I would not be surprised if we learn that this happened on a number of occasions and that there are more American GIs who helped liberate these camps that had similar experiences. In terms of healing and in terms of bringing closure, you can see how important this is. And so while I, I, again, I understand the argument against the soap you can see how someone would be disturbed enough by even the possibility of it to want to do something and to want to make it part of the official memorial. Off my soapbox. Pun intended. I don't think that we have forgotten this. And I actually had this conversation um, with Ashley when we were driving back from New Orleans last week. And she was talking about how her boyfriend Adam, who... Adam uh, is in graduate school studying history. He doesn't really like war movies, and particularly World War II movies, um, and dislikes particularly Holocaust stories and thinks that they negatively glorify them. And I haven't had this conversation with Adam, so he might word it differently. I think the thing about memorials is, is that certain memorials hit certain people different ways. I think that one of the reasons that people are so affected by a story like, say, The Diary of Anne Frank, and I picked that because it's the one that almost everyone is familiar with, whether you read the play, whether you read the diary itself, whether you saw the movie, it takes a concept that is so large, that is so overwhelming, that if you really stop to think about it, you would just be crushed under it. And it focuses it on one individual. And we as individuals can relate to that person. And I think particularly that's why Anne Frank has such a powerful impact is because she has all the same fears and dreams and desires and experiences that we all experience as a teenager. I read an interesting anecdote about memorials to the Shoah that talked about some school children who decided that they were going to memorialize the Holocaust by collecting a paperclip for every person who died. Kind of like the, the story of um, the thousand paper cranes. It reminded me a little bit of that, where... They put out the word that they want people to send them paper clips at their school. And after a year, they had collected 160,000 paper clips, which that's a lot of paper clips. However, they calculated that if they continue to collect paper clips at the same rate, which arguably when you start a project, you have more momentum and the longer it goes on, the more it slows down. So imagine like the next year, maybe they would collect less paperclips and then less paperclips. Even if they kept up the same momentum and collected 160,000 paperclips a year, it would take them 37 and a half years to collect 6 million paperclips. Think about that. These children would be middle-aged by the time they got all of those paperclips. 6 million is a number that most of us can't fathom. And interestingly enough, I know a lot of the scholars that I talked about today 
have actually, um, Deborah Lipstadt has, have talked about maybe revising the numbers that maybe we have overestimated the amount of Jews who are killed. It's closer to 5.1 million. It's still a lot. It's a lot on a level that we can't really contemplate. It's a number the size of the largest metropolitan areas in the United States. How do you accurately memorialize something like that? I certainly don't have the answer. It's been 75 years since the liberation of the concentration camps. We're still struggling with the answer. And honestly, I think that that's a good thing. I think it means that we still understand the magnitude. We still understand the horror. And we still remember, most importantly. It's a bit of a downer episode, I know that, but given the kind of gravity of the memorial for 75 years, I thought it was a good one. And it's also something that, like I said, I think is very unique to Atlanta and it's something that not a lot of people know about. Everyone knows about Martin Luther King. Everybody visits there. Everybody visits Oakland Cemetery. This is sort of a quiet corner that if you were to talk to most people in the Jewish community, they all know. But I think it's something that really the wider public should be aware of. As always, I thank everyone for your support, for your recommendations and your reviews on iTunes, Spotify, whatever platform you are using to listen. Please continue to rate, review, please subscribe, follow along on social media. We are at tomb period with period a period view on Instagram, tomb with a view podcast on Facebook. Also, Tomb with a View podcast at gmail.com if you would like to email. And lastly, you can check out our website, www.tombwithaview.weebly.com. Moving forward, I've got some exciting things coming up in the next couple of weeks. Looking to do some collaboration, maybe with some other podcasts, which I'm very excited about. Also, I have... Uh, an unexpected but really interesting interview that I have lined up that I think you guys are really going to enjoy. It's one that I, just having a casual conversation about it, learned a lot. So you know that's going to be pretty good. But for now, I thank you very much. I'm Liz Clappen. You have a wonderful weekend. This is Tomb with a View.